I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, B. Lund, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, Dr. Laura Shihai, an assistant professor of clinical psychology at George Washington University, joins us to discuss what she argues is a spurious complaint lodged by a right-wing pro-Israel group against her university, claiming that Dr. Shihai engaged in hate speech and discrimination against her Jewish and Zionist students. Dr. Shihai says that she's opposed to anti-Semitism, and that this complaint isn't actually about fighting anti-Semitism, but rather silencing an Arab woman with pro-Palestinian views. Given that this case has been covered in outlets ranging from Fox News to The Guardian, I thought I'd reach out to Dr. Shihai to get her side of the story. So, with that in mind, let's get right to it with Dr. Laura Shihai. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm really excited to be speaking with. I think her story is very important. Uh, Dr. Laura Shihai, Assistant Professor of Clinical Psychology at the George Washington University Professional Psychology Program. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me. So, Laura, I first heard about your case through a number of different activists, including, shout out here, Lexi Alexander, the great Palestinian German filmmaker, and a number of other people told me this is a very important case as well. Uh, so maybe you could tell us what is going on with your position at George Washington University and the complaint that was filed against the university that really, I, I think you sum it up in your Counterpunch article very well, amounts to the targeting of an Arab woman. Yes. 
thank you for giving me the space to talk about it. And um, certainly in these cases, it's really important to hear directly from the person who's being attacked. So any space that makes room for that is very much appreciated. And it's appreciated not just on a personal level, but just a larger uh, movement. Because I think as you probably know, and if anybody who has followed, I'm certainly not the first or only one who's gone through this or been going through this. So these spaces are really important for us to be able to speak out and um, resist being intimidated and resist being silenced. Um, so I would like to also thank the folks who brought it to your attention. And and I, I think it's sometimes easy to think that these things are small when somebody brings something to the attention of another person or activism in the Twitter sphere or whatever the case is. But the fact of the matter is these cases get whipped up uh, in the right wing blogosphere. And if we're not talking about them and we're not owning the narrative and if we're not sort of reseizing the truth, um, they can really very quickly just become their narrative, which matches up with a political ideological campaign that that seeks to silence, especially voices that are talking about Palestine. Real quick, and I want you to give yeah. an overview of the, the complaint that was filed in your case uh, more generally. But we really should emphasize that uh, your case has been mentioned in a lot of right wing media. I saw it get mentioned in the libertarian blog Reason, uh, and also I've seen it mentioned in Fox News. So there's a lot of right-wing voices mobilizing against you. Maybe you can talk about why that is and uh, just the overview of your case. Yeah, absolutely. That's not by chance, right? I think, and it's not a conspiracy either. Sometimes we think about these cases, oh, you know, why would the right-wing sort of align with these uh, sorts of ideas or protect Israel or any one of these things. But, um, you know, I was just recently on an interview in, for the Katie Helper show. And one thing that Katie Helper, the point she made, um, and again, I consider myself a lifelong learner from my Jewish colleagues and friends. And one of the positions she made was the two people who collapse uh, sort of criticism against the state of Israel as anti-Semitism point blank are either the right wing or Zionists, right? And so it's really important for us to think about how these uh, issues kind of line up. But to backtrack a little bit more, I think the reason why the right wing has really taken this up is precisely because Stand With Us, which is the organization, the pro-Israel advocacy group, an organization that filed the Title VI complaint to the Department of Education against George Washington University, They filed this complaint in early January, and they redacted everybody's name except mine. So the complaint is against the university, but the way that it shakes out in the public eye is because my name is the only name that's out there, it looks like it's a complaint against me. The piece that's really important here is I got a email the night before this was even filed by a right-wing quote unquote, news source, and I'm putting it in quotes because it's not a news source, but it's a very, you know, prominent right wing uh, organization in Washington. And they wrote me and they said, we have this complaint and we know that Stand With Us is filing it tomorrow. So that should tell us already what we're dealing with. If a organization is really serious about the complaints that they are filing, especially in today's climate, and especially when we know uh, the virulent anti-Semitism of the right wing in this country, and this country, I mean the United States, but really globally, why would you be 
uh, releasing this to a right-wing source before it even gets filed with the Department of Education. And I'm saying this because the Department of Education actually has a process by which they go through this. So if you truly could rely on the grievance process or due process or procedural issues, which libertarians really love, if you could rely on that, why release it to a right-wing news source? And my position, and again, which I take up in the counterpunches, is because this is a long-standing process that right-wing advocacy groups, particularly those who are aligned with the state of Israel, do because they can rely on those sources to do the sort of cultural and political work for them. They're a well-oiled machine in the right-wing sphere, particularly in the United States, and it was immediate. I mean, this was filed on Thursday and the harassment and the threats and the threats of bodily harm, forced deportation, rape, sexual harassment, um, aggression against my home, against my family was immediate. And that's what we mean. Like if if things are that quick, we know this isn't the first time around. I was going to say, too, uh, because I I made a flub at the beginning there. I was wrong. I don't think it was Reason Magazine. I was thinking of, it was the Washington Free Beacon who I think jumped on this story almost immediately, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. But you're right that Reason Magazine did take this up as though it's a real issue, right? Um, and and this is the thing. I think what we've seen after the fact is that these multiple sources end up citing each other. So it looks like it's, you know, all these sources that are writing about this and really making this issue or have a very sort of sophisticated analysis. But when you look really at it and who's writing these pieces, it's a handful of people who are regurgitating the same points, recycling each other's stories and continuously trying to make this an issue. And that is the strategy, right? Jewish Voice for Peace Healthcare Advisory Council released an urgent letter of support on my behalf. And in that urgent letter of support, they specifically say this follows a tired playbook that we know. And they know it because, of course, in 2015, Jewish Voice for Peace released a report that included Stand With Us uh, as one of the main organizations in the United States that works on campuses and works to put political pressure um, both in universities and also scarily in high schools to suppress any sort of support for Palestine, particularly when it comes to boycott, divestment and sanctions, BDS, or anything remotely critical of the state of Israel and its policies. So this Stand With Us group is basically a uh, pro-Israel advocacy group that really goes hard on Palestinian voices and activists. Um, And you're not the only one. No, no, I'm not the only one. It's a, again, it's a well-known group. Um, The Guardian uh, wrote a piece about a month ago, sort of uh, doing a, a summary of what has happened and sort of my sort of claims that GW is colluding with a right wing group. And one of the things that they mention in there, which is really important, I'm citing The Guardian because I think sometimes people, um, let's say moderates, will say, well, all, all everything that you are citing is, you know, Jewish voice for peace, which is like, OK, what would you like me to cite when it comes to these issues? Well, or um, they'll say, oh, you, you wrote an article in Counterpunch. That's a far left rag. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So when we say if you have The Guardian writing a piece and sort of actually recognizing what we know about Stand With Us. Stand With Us claims that it's a nonpartisan group, but what we know both from The Guardian and The Forward, by the way, has also a lengthy expose about Stand With Us several years back, is that Stand With Us works very closely with the Israeli foreign ministry 
and to oppose any sort of position that's against Israel, again, on campuses, in high schools. Um, and one of the things that it does also, and so this nonpartisan position that they try and take is ridiculous at best, right? When you really look at what they do, but including support for settlements, which under international law is, are illegal. So that is why it's not an empty gesture when we say right wing. If you are in support of Israeli settlements, you are not just a soft Zionist. You are lock and step with what we know is the current fascist regime of Israel, right? And I think those are the positions. Once you take those positions as a group, it's very hard to claim that you are nonpartisan. And the piece about this, for my case, is also the Stand With Us has been known, again, documented by places like The Forward or The Guardian, that they teach students how to go into classrooms and audio record classrooms to catch, quote unquote, academics in what they call anti-Israel positions, which then they use, like you said, it's not only me, which then they use to sort of further their claim. I'm um, assuming these uh, recordings are often taken out of context or they're spliced. Yeah. Yes, of course. In the case, I, I have, uh, I suspect that my classroom was, uh, was audio taped that day, just based on, you know, quotes that were in the bogus complaint. Um, and to your point, what is really incredible about this is that if that actual transcript were released, it would not be in their favor. <laughs> It would not be in their favor because you could see that actually the uh, sort of outbursts and aggression and racism came from folks in the class who had a Zionist position. Um, and also it would show that I actually did not engage in any sort of aggression or retaliation or or any sort of undue, untoward behavior uh, towards my Jewish students in that class, nor have I ever. Yeah, I was wondering if you could speak to that a little bit. Just um, I'm sure you have had uh, students that are Zionists or that are not necessarily in agreement with your views. And I'm reminded of, you know, when I went to college, I went through a very uh, regrettable, I would say now, sort of uh, libertarian phase, you know. So I had teachers that were very much in disagreement with my views, but I never felt like there was a disrespect or that I was singled out. We would just have conversations. So I'm assuming... Uh, that you also have that sort of good student-teacher relationship uh, with your students, even if they have major disagreements with some of the things you may think in your personal or political life. Absolutely. And and I think this is one of the most shameful things and egregiously bad faith about this complaint is that it it entirely erodes what I believe are my ethical responsibilities, both as an academic as an educator and as a clinical psychologist, which is different than other cases. I have another ethics code that I am beholden to, to make sure that everybody in my classroom is treated respectfully and ha and is able to feel like they can be in that space with me, right? And it, it's, it's really important to see that I have been teaching this class um, for several years. Uh, it, academics regularly get uh, reviewed. We have student evaluations, and this has never been an issue. It's never been an issue because that is not my position on things. I would never in my life retaliate against students 
uh, no matter who they are, but in this case, especially Jewish students or especially Israelis. I think one of the most tragic things about this it is precisely what you're saying, is what it does also is collapse all Jewish students and their identities. And it sort of foments this idea that I outright target all Jewish students. That is their position in the claim, which is ludicrous and, and easy to disprove. In fact, many of my students, hundreds of my students uh, wrote a letter of support on my behalf and, and including students who were in the class that was documented in the complaint and said, this is categorically false. What happened, what is described in the complaint does not match up with reality, does not match up with what we know to have happened, does not match up with our eyewitness accounts. Those students include Jewish students and they are lost in this mix because what that complaint uh, attempts to do is say that all Jewish students feel the same about this. All Jewish students feel like they have been attacked, right? And I think that's just, I mean, it's a parallel to this larger issue we have about collapsing uh, uh, criticism of the state of Israel with anti-Semitism. I think, again, I learned from my colleagues, my Jewish colleagues and my comrades and my uh, friends who feel very much put off by this because their voices and their identities are entirely railroaded in that process. Um, one thing I'll say is that the timing of this is not uh, coincidental, right? We had a voluntary brown bag event. That I was wanted a- to get into that. I, I, yes. for, I, I always, whenever I mention the brown bagger event aspect of this case, I will always have people inevitably say, what's a brown bagger event? So maybe we could get into what this event was and, and the sure. nature of it. Yeah. Sure. And, and, and it links up actually with your question. So it's helpful for us to go into it. So a brown bag event for those who are not in academia. Uh, it, it comes from calling it a brown bag because people it's an informal event where people used to bring their lunches in brown bags. So it's a shorthand to say this is an event that's happening and it's meant to sort of gather people informally. And usually it's a talk or a presentation and it gives space for folks to have a conversation Um with people who are invited to talk. So we have had many, we have brown bags in our program all the time. There's usually two per semester or so. Um, this one coincided with the kickoff event for a lab that I had just uh, kicked off called the Psychoanalysis in the Arab World Lab, which is why it had to, it pertained with the Arab world. So um, our speaker, uh, Professor Nadira Shalhoub Kavarkian, who is a esteemed uh, feminist decolonial scholar and an Israeli citizen herself um, who teaches at Hebrew University, um, came to speak and her the, the, the sort of position of her paper was very much about our responsibility as clinical psychologists to make sure we're not what she calls mental health washing our efforts. And she really draws on the work of two Israeli uh, scholars who have looked at the efforts of the Israeli state in the context of Africa about when there are crises, just like USAID, by the way. I mean, the parallel is like, let's say Haiti and any sort of crisis uh, or, or Puerto Rico, for example. When you have crisis events, the ways in which state might, states in, in general might take advantage of that to come in and sort of push political ends. Right. Again, this is larger sort of international policy we're talking about here. So but her position was because we're clinical psychologists, we actually have an extra ethical responsibility to be careful 
Because anytime we intervene in times of crises, people are really vulnerable in those times. And what we don't want to do is inadvertently or explicitly push any state positions because that's coercive, right? When people are are really in dire need, like we saw in the earthquakes in Turkey or Syria, for example. When people are in dire positions, they are put in coercive positions to accept help from anybody. But what that doesn't also look like is like the long-standing history of oppression between certain states and others and how all of a sudden you are coming in in a helping position. This is not something we made up, not myself and not Nadira Sharukka, right? So that was the brown bag. And I think what this complaint does is a very um, cynical rewriting of history because what it does is take the sort of feelings that a couple students had about that brown bag and rework the narrative backwards to my classroom. That brown bag had nothing to do with my classroom. But what it does is rework it so it looks like I have been targeting students from day one. And that narrative also matched up with some colleagues in my program as well, who started to sort of match that those very same talks. You cut out there for a, a second. You said some of your colleagues and then it cut out. Should you repeat that? Right. Some of, some of my colleagues also started to sort of parrot these same uh, positions and talking points that my class is the issue when really it was the brown bag, which I want to repeat again, was voluntary and also not held, held in our site on campus. It was held, held off of our site so that students didn't feel like they had to be there or in that space or anything at all. So, so it was that, basically an event for, for students or people that wanted to come to hear about this uh, topic. Yes. It wasn't you know, really part of the class, really. No, no, it had nothing to do with the class. It, it was a a extra, we, we give our students sort of extra spaces to learn about things that might not be covered in their curriculum. You can't really cover everything. So these brown bags actually allow us to do, we might say special topics, right? Or things that our students might otherwise be interested in. Sometimes our students bring things to our attention and say, we'd really like to hear more about this. Um, this one, because of psychoanalysis in the Arab World Lab, was really about these sort of efforts in our region and what our responsibility as clinicians are. But what, Professor Shalhub Kavarkian is also an expert. So she was drawing it into larger uh, ideas of human rights discourse. I mean, again, none of this stuff is 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 new. And this is the part, I think, on the academic side that is really concerning is most of these positions are just not controversial in academia. They're very basic positions. They're very, um, they're, they're positions that have been supported for many, many, many decades by entire disciplines. And so the sort of fanfare around this is really also reactionary in terms of what we know from disciplines if we're true scholars around these issues. So then I know there's been uh, in, in the complaint, there was uh, what I think you call a, a sort of uh, sloppy representation of your syllabus. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that and about the readings in your syllabus and the misrepresentation that has taken uh, place with regards to that? Yeah, I think the most important thing here is, again, and I, I can't um, overstate this. I teach in a doctoral program for clinical psychology. 
And I think that is really important to continue honing in on because part of my responsibility is to train clinical psychologists. That means people who are going to be treating other humans, right? And so one of the misrepresentations about my classroom is that the syllabus was meant to teach people about their own biases. Is that part of what I do? I, I, or I'm sorry, let me rephrase that. It was to teach people about the biases that the patients they see might have experienced in their life. Is that part of what we do? Of course. But actually, my position and the growing trend in our field is to train people to be aware of their own biases when they see people. And when we say that, that doesn't mean just implicit biases. It means the many identifications that we might have in our world that fundamentally might affect people who are vulnerable. And so my syllabus actually is a syllabus that takes up these issues structurally. I talk about the conditions that create oppression. We talk about larger structures, whether that's patriarchy or uh, white supremacy, whiteness, capitalism, and all these things are really important because we are implicated in that. We are a health field. And that means there's power involved in the positions that we take. We might inadvertently lend legitimacy to certain state projects. Let's say, for example, mass incarceration. It's very easy for us to get pulled into these positions where we become police. We become cops. We often are actually invited in to do the work of law enforcement. And so this is part of what my my syllabus talks about. You can't garner that from the complaint in any way, shape or form. Right. Um, the other thing that's misrepresented is it makes it seem like my syllabus from day one was a Palestine syllabus. Right. That, that it was specifically dedicated exactly. to Palestine, where you really I think it's only mentioned in passing in two of your readings. Right. Correct. Exactly. So the position, because, again, I want to I want to sort of make this clear is this complaint is sensationalist and it's meant to be like that. Anybody can file a complaint with the Department of Education. And what usually happens is the Department of Education takes its time. And then if there's something to follow up on, they follow up with the university around it. Um, not we have heard nothing from the Department of Education. Sometimes the Department of Education never responds. Sometimes the Department of Education throws things out like it has done in the past with complaints filed by Stand With Us, right? But that is part of the sensationalist element of it is because how juicy is it that a psychologist and a professor who happens to be an Arab woman who does advocate for the right of Palestinians outside the classroom Teaching a course on diversity, what is juicier than this entire diversity course being about Palestine, right? Now, are they that heavy handed? No, but the insinuations are there, of course. So anybody reading this, that might not be very critical. I've had a lot of people reach out to me and be like, this is absolutely ridiculous. Anybody who's reading this would see how ridiculous this claim is, how sloppy it is, how, you know, a sort of politically uh, motivated but the bottom line is, yes, you are right. There are no explicitly Palestine content, meaning none of the readings are like, this is about Palestine, right? And certainly none of the readings are, this is against Jewish folks, because that is un un unconscionable to do. And that would never be something that shows up in any self-respecting syllabus. So one thing I wanted to talk about was, mm -hmm. you know, I think there's this issue of how anti-Semitism 
which is a very real issue. And I've heard you say that, that you oppose anti-Semitism as much as you oppose colonialism, et cetera, et cetera, white supremacy. You also oppose anti-Semitism. But we also see the ways in which anti-Semitism is now being weaponized. Uh, We look at this group, uh, Stand With Us, right? And they're not just going after people like yourself. I've even seen Stand With Us attack a group like J Street, which is not exactly, I would say they're uh, pro-Israel lobby, they're a Zionist lobby, uh, but they're even considered not pro-Israel enough. And I do think we're seeing this weaponization of claims of anti-Semitism. Could you talk about that and the problems that arise from that? Right. Um, and, And, you know, like any good scholar, what I would say is that these are not positions that are mine to define, right, as as a non-Jewish person. Um, they're also not something that I don't spend a lot of time actually uh, educating myself about. So when I talk about this, I am talking about it having learned from, again, colleagues who are far more immersed in this literature than I am, uh, Jewish colleagues, folks who I have learned alongside and who teach me about the dangers of collapsing these issues precisely because they make them feel really unsafe. But like you're saying, I think the really important piece here is what you're pointing out is that there's a collapse of coherence somewhere along the way that happens, right? And I think one of the things to look at is if we are following the trends Um, learning from folks who teach us about what you have said is the weaponization of anti-Semitism. There's a piece, for example, in Truth Out uh, magazine by uh, three students from George Washington University's Jewish Voice for Peace who talk about the dangers of that for them. And that is what I'm interested in, right, is what are the dangers of this collapse? And I think we're seeing more and more organizations really understand what are the potential implications of this that also then erase the true root issues. And so when I learn from Jewish colleagues who talk about what they call the weaponization of anti-Semitism is that when you sort of collapse criticism of the state of Israel with anti-Semitism, you're also missing the real root cause of anti-Semitism, which to them is the hegemony of the Christian right or Christianity in general, right? And white supremacy. And I think that collapse really misses that. How did, these are the issues that we're really looking at. One of the other things they take sort of aim at is the IHRA definition. I think that's probably why Stand With Us also goes up against J Street or goes up against even sort of progressive rabbis who are for the BDS because they feel like you said, they're not, you know, sort of pro-Israel enough when they take these positions. But I think one of the things that I have- And for people that don't know, the IHRA definition is sort of conflating criticism of Israel or anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism, but go on. Absolutely, exactly. And actually, you know, one of the things that I recently uh, I've sort of been learning more about is that six out of 10 examples in the IHRA definition are about criticizing Israel. Right. And so that is what these folks and these groups and especially anti-Zionist Jewish folks, but also Jewish folks who might not be anti-Zionist, but understand the implications, because like what you said, anti-Semitism is very real. So the 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 position is that if we start confusing these issues we might actually really be endangering jewish folks 
we also might be veering away from these incredibly concerning fascist positions that are growing the world over. We don't have to look very far if you're in the context of the United States to see real anti-Semitic issues and real anti-Semitic positions. Well, I was going to say we had Donald Trump uh, criticizing the American Jewish community saying they're not pro-Israel enough. Right. And I'm thinking to myself, what I mean, this feels very anti-Semitic when he's assuming that they're, you know, they're obliged to support Israel or to support Netanyahu, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. Yes. And collapsing an entire people. Right. The homogeneity of it. Um, the Tiki Torch March at UVA, uh, literally screaming, you will not replace us, the January 6th uprising. I mean, these we don't have to look far. And those are the sort of positions. When you say, I fight anti-Semitism as, as uh, sort of in, in as committedly as I do anything else, it's because I see the structural connections between the two. I see or between all of these fights that we have, because the root cause is these larger structural oppressive issues that would target the most vulnerable among us. One thing that's really important for me to touch upon here is, you know, you've had horrible accusations uh, thrown at you. Uh, You know, I know in your article, you talk about people that want to call you an anti-Semite, Jew-hating trash an ISIS follower, a Hezbollah operative, a Hamas agent, an Ayatollah, an Iranian spy, and even an Arab Goebbels. Uh, You also mentioned that you've received either tweets or emails uh, calling for you to be publicly ridiculed, deported to Lebanon, and sniped or killed for being treasonous. And, you know, what I find so just utterly shocking uh, about this is that, you know, in, in years prior, If someone were to say, oh, by virtue of being Jewish and having support for Israel, you must be some kind of fifth columnist, you know, that we would rightfully call anti-Semitic. But when it's done to Arab people, when they're called Iranian agents for having an opinion on Israel and Palestine, you know, it's these two things are the same thing. They, They grow out of the same type of xenophobic, paranoid, sort of conspiratorial Uh, thinking. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that a lot of people don't see the way in which the same type of tropes that are often used against Jews are used against Arabs. Yes. And and they are because they follow a certain logic, right? And they follow a logic, like you said, of xenophobia, of racism, this this sort of invoking the other, invoking fear. Um, But here's where it starts to... Well, invoking like uh, dual loyalties tropes as well. Yeah. Yes. Of course, exactly, right? The Ayatollahs, that I must be a sleeper cell, um, which, by the way, is something that Stand With Us also really sort of works on. This idea that I'm a, a constantly sort of an imminent threat to uh, Jewish students or Jewish folks. And what is the sort of connection between that is that I'm Arab and I happen to support the fight for Palestinian freedom. Therefore, of course, I am... Uh, I must be these things, right? There, there's no way in which I'm not then aligned with, then there's, of course, they pull out all the tropes of terrorism that are are rife and well in the context of the United States. You don't have to work really hard. Like there's some people who are saying, oh, this is conspiratorial. I'm like, there's nothing conspiratorial 
about the virulent Islamophobia and anti-Arab and anti-Palestinian sentiment that lives in the context of the United States. You don't have to scratch a surface very hard for that to be present. And so the quickness of that movement, the associative processes, that the second this comes up, because if we really sort of step back, that is a very large jump to call somebody who writes about Palestine and sort of fights, to call them an ayatollist is a very large jump. That is a concerning jump to me cognitively, right? But the only way it makes sense is if it works on these tropes that you are talking about. And I think that's the logic that this shares, right? I think the reason that some folks don't see the similarities like you might or that I'm, I might is because we know there's a Palestine exception to free speech. Nothing kind of quite is able to do this and shut down a space immediately like Palestine. The, the Center for Constitutional Rights and Palestine Legal, of course, have documented this for years, that there's a Palestine exception. And we're seeing this at George Washington University, by the way. I think this is a really important piece of this is this filing was filed with the Department of Education on January 12th. Within almost a day, the university president at George Washington had mentioned and said that he would hire a third party investigator to look into this, right? So he preempted the Department of Education's movement when Department of Education is the only body that can adjudicate these issues. On February 14th, Palestine Legal filed a Title VI complaint on behalf of three students documenting a variety of out of proportion disciplinary actions against Palestinian students or those who are thought to be Palestinian. They documented the the sort of having to be witness and experience anti-Palestinian racism in the classroom and the fact that a trauma group was taken away from people who wanted to attend a trauma group for Palestinians who were traumatized, particularly when the the last Gaza um, um, sort of offensive was happening. We did not see anything, nor have we still heard anything from George Washington University about a third party investigator there. And that's what I mean about a Palestinian exception. This is not some abstract concept we are talking about. Here are two issues a month apart with very different processes that are involved, very different ways of handling it. And so we see it in real time, the Palestine exception, right? And that's the piece why people, I think, can't see the connection because ideologically, there's a way in which Palestine is held to a different standard than anything else. I also want to say, uh, when I was preparing this interview with you, mm -hmm. uh, one of the questions I often ask uh, both my Palestinian and even Jewish guests that are critical of Israel is how they respond to accusations of anti-Semitism. And recently I had a chance to interview uh, Derin J. Salam, the filmmaker behind the great movie Farha. And I asked her this question, and I think she took issue with it in the sense of, why do you ask me this as an Arab woman? Why do I have to prove to you that I'm not anti-Semitic? Right. Um, and I think there's a point to be made there. It seems like Anyone who is critical of Israel, especially if they're Arab, and is even more especially if they're an Arab woman, the burden of proof is on them. They have to prove that they're uh, not anti-Semitic. And it's not really dissimilar from, uh, you know, when, when President Kennedy uh, was in office in the U.S., you know, you had a lot of anti-Catholic bigotry. Well, right. President Kennedy has to prove that he doesn't have 
dole loyalties to the Vatican. So I think there's a similar thing going on here where there's this unfair expectation. Oh, you're Arab. That means you have to prove you're not anti-Semitic. Uh, can you speak to that issue a little bit? Yeah, of course. I think you're 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 spot on. And so is Berin. I think, you know, and, and one thing I will say is that you don't even have to be critical of Israel to have that expectation put on you. And that's the issue, right? Is that oftentimes it's like, well, you're critical of Israel, therefore I need to ask you. And what our position is actually, no, before we even open our mouths, by virtue of being Arab, the precondition is for us to prove that we are not anti-Semitic as a means to even be able to be in dialogue or relationship with us. And that is an ask, again, that is not abstract. This happened in the context of the university with me. This happens very regularly with students who come up to me, students both from the program in which I teach, but across the United States who tell me that they are often asked in interviews or in supervision how comfortable they feel working with a Jewish person just because they're Arab. So there's a presumption along which people are functioning. Um, I would never allow this to be asked. Imagine asking a Jewish student if that were the same case. We would never do that because that's a discriminatory ask, right? The basis of this ask also is very much the workings of Europe, the workings of an anti-Semitic Europe, the basis of which anti-Semitism and the most grotesque violence against Jewish people came from Europe. And instead of being responsible for that violence, Europe vacates that and asks Arabs and particularly Palestinians to carry that burden for them. This is the same parallel that we're talking about with IHRA. When I learn from my students or I learn from my colleagues, it's a displacement of white supremacy, which starts in Europe. And that is the basis of anti-Semitism. So that ask has a long history too. It has a long history that again saddles the Arab world with the entire world's anti-Semitism, which is not our invention, right? I mean, and this I say this a lot. I was like, you know, when you travel in Europe, you see the anti-Semitism that's there. You see the symbols of hate against Jewish folks. Do you know where I have not seen that? Palestine, right? And yet we are still saddled with that. So I'm curious, when it comes to your case, I've heard you say that at first you thought, oh, maybe there's just some, maybe this all isn't in bad faith. Um, maybe there's some students that are just uncomfortable um, or they have uh, grievances or et cetera, et cetera. Uh, at what point did you say, oh, there's an organized campaign going on and this is not in good faith? Yeah, quite frankly, when the Stand With Us complaint came out, I I, do, I, I don't think now I look back and this is the tragic that Stand With Us complaint now has me look back with a more cynical eye. Now that I know Stand With Us is involved, I look back and I say, was my classroom audio taped? How many times was it audio taped? Was this all a setup from the beginning, right? Because the narrative fits, a narrative that we've seen many times. Like you said, I'm not the only one. In many ways, it's a banal case, but it's also 
a really important case in terms of academic freedom because of the way that George Washington has has handled it. I just wanted to add to that. Uh, So there's other cases that we can name. For instance, uh, Kenneth Roth, who was the former Human Rights Watch executive director, he was offered a fellowship at the Harvard Kennedy School, and he eventually got that fellowship. uh, But you know, there was a big campaign against him because, oh, he has a bias in favor of the Palestinians. We've seen this happen to academics like Stephen Salatia and Sheed um, Abu Salama. So Mm -hmm. there's a number of other cases as well. Uh, Could you talk about the importance of academic freedom when it comes to Israel and Palestine? Yeah, 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 of course. And and this is the thing. And I think the part of academic freedom is related to this idea that, you know, when you look backwards, you're like, oh, now that I know Stand With Us is involved, the academic freedom is also the freedom to be able to function in our classrooms without having to think that there is an outside political group with a political motivation and political aims interfering in your classroom. One of the things that has come out after this is one of the students who was in my class was an intern with Stand With Us in high school. So it, it sort of ends up being like, is was this a setup? So it allow that is the part of academic freedom that's really important for us and why there has been so much support, right? So um, 2,400 signatories to a letter by U.S. ACBI because academics are really concerned about the academic freedom aspect of this. Uh, in, in addition to Stephen Salaita and Shahada and all these f- folks that we know of. I'm sorry a- I, if I got their names wrong, if they're oh, listening. But <laughs> it's, totally, it's totally fine. Um, uh, well, I won't say it's totally fine on their behalf, but I'm happy to speak their names. Um, so we also know of Rabab Abdel Hadi at SFSU, who has been in a decades long uh, embroilment with uh, San Francisco State University, um, who has completely maligned her. Stand With Us has come after her. Um, and, and despite the fact that her faculty union found her without uh, without wrongdoing, all these sorts of things, and, and the, uh, the university intervening to to go against what the faculty advisement has been. So that is what we're talking about. We're talking about being able to function autonomously as faculty, being able to teach critical thinking skills, being able to function in an environment that's free of political oppression and political pressures, uh, to be able to feel like our universities and our administrators have our back We are their employees and to not have them cave. This is the Jewish Voice for Peace Healthcare Advisory Council mentions in their letter that oftentimes administrators and universities cave under political pressure. By the way, this is not very different. It's specific to Palestine, but it's not very different than the things we are seeing and we are very concerned about having to do with critical race theory, having to do with trans issues, having to do with queer issues, reproductive rights. These are the same sorts of logics that are repeated over and over and over again. I was going to say, I'm in Florida right now, and we see what Ron DeSantis and the Republicans here want to do to the universities here. I mean, this all ties together. Absolutely, it does. And it's actually really important for us to speak that out loud, because what happens when we, you know, sort of take this route that this is um, exceptional, which is what these organizations like Stand With Us want to sort of 
have this narrative that this is exceptional, that we are exceptionalizing Israel, that we're exceptionalizing. It's like, no, it's our responsibility as educators actually to make the, as Nur Arakat might tell us, that it's not an exceptional case. It's This is what settler colonialism and apartheid looks like. And if we look at it in that way, it's not exceptional. We have to hold, go ahead. Uh, well, no, go on. Finish with what you were saying. It's not exceptional. and Right. It's not exceptional, both in terms of the state of Israel. It's not exceptional. It's a settler colonial state like the United States, like Canada, like New Zealand, like Australia. And we have to treat it like that. And on the other side, even though there's a Palestine exception, the methods by which academic freedom are being infringed upon are the same ones we see across the board and which we really need to be concerned about. Because this is precedent setting. I want to get into that a little bit more, but I also wanted to comment for people that think this is just about academia. I don't think it is. So uh, let me explain what I mean there. Uh, recently, we had a group called UK Lawyers for Israel yes. filing a complaint against a London hospital that had artwork from Gazan children because they said it made some of the Jewish patients feel vulnerable and victimized to have that artwork in the hospital. I mean, you have multiple organized groups, and I think these groups are helping to create a climate of fear and intimidation mm -hmm. that are silencing, utterly silencing Palestinian voices, even children who just made artwork. You know, know, oh my God, we can't show the artwork because it comes from Gaza. That will make these patients feel uncomfortable. I mean, this is a real silencing of an entire group of people. Yes, yes. And it's and it's a um it's a real, it's really predatory too, right? There's a way in which, you know, I would like to see like, was it, you know, who of these patients actually said this? Because what we know also is that these groups really court these sorts of uh, sensationalist stories as part of a political campaign. And I can't sort of stress this enough. This is political. This is not about a religious identity. This is a political campaign that has uh, roots in a state that is a rogue state, that is a state that is an offender against human rights, that has been excessively so and continuously so in violation of international law. That is why it's concerning. Because when you look at these things, or what you see, for, for example, Julia Basha's uh, newest documentary about boycott, right, is that there are states that are passing these laws that would have it that if you work within a state uh, institution, that you can't sign on to BDS. So you're right. It's not just an academia. And and it is not a conspir conspiracy. I think we really do ourselves a disservice when we talk about it in those terms. What it is, is political organization. This is what political organizing is. This is what political lobbying is. This is what sort of piecing together a narrative and making it what scholars have called facts on the ground shifts an entire narrative, right? And that is why these cases like the Gazan children artwork or this case in academia or in, in BDS cases in state institutions or in high schools where students are being barred from talking about Palestine or in uh, in uh, Canada, where we see in a National Heritage Day that students are not allowed to wear a kufiyi because the principal tells them that is that is uh, a symbol of violence. These things are happening across the board. And they're happening across the board because there is a 
political movement that is trying to make these connections happen. And they're trying to do them in a way that they that people are scared not to align with them. Tying this into your work on psychology, psychoanalysis, and, and trauma, what does that do to, say, a Palestinian-American or an Arab child? What is the, I mean, because to me, you're telling people to repress their identity, and yes. you're, you're saying that their experience doesn't matter. You're sort of erasing it. Yes. What effect does that have on people psychologically? Yes, I mean, I think you you named it. It's It's indigenous erasure. Right. When you when you end up saying that um, that you don't exist fundamentally, which is the most right wing of Zionist uh, positions that Palestinians don't exist. There's no such thing. Right. But there's also a sort of connection back to our question of having to justify and qualify oneself beforehand. There is an enormous psychic toll put on Arabs. And Palestinians, specifically Palestinian children, when they constantly have to justify their existence in a way that no other students have to do. What I want to say is that I think we're in a different moment now where there is a global solidarity movement that has the same analysis that you're saying, that this is there's something fundamentally inhumane and discriminatory about putting the psychic task on a particular people and also having them be responsible for anything of the associations that are racist or anti-Arab or anti-Palestinian, that they, as a fundamental starting point, have to dispel all of this just to be themselves. So this idea about dialogue, too, which is part of what we work on, is a myth. There is no such thing as dialogue when to even engage in dialogue, you have to fundamentally efface everything that is you. You're not dialoguing with a Palestinian. You're dialoguing with the subject that you have created, which includes, which fundamentally means they're not Palestinian. You want them to call themselves Arabs, not Palestinian. You want them not to have a flag. You want them not to be able to resist under international law. All of this sort of, these qualifications are qualifications that are fundamentally self-effacing and erasing. And if one doesn't do that, this is the really the psychic, you'd say the gaslighting effect of that. If one is not willing to do that and says, no, I'm not going to, you're aggressive. You're anti-Semitic in the case of Palestinians, right? You're unwilling, you're stubborn, you're all the things, you're rageful. These are all the things that have been said about me, by the way, even in my own profession, a profession full of psychologists and psychoanalysts, right? So you can imagine the duress that people are under, and especially kids as they're developing, when everybody else has the luxury, let's say, of hopefully having the luxury, because we know this is also where it ties into when we talk about trans kids and when we talk about issues of having the luxury to be fully come into yourself. If you have a limitation on that and a limitation that's exterior, that's structural, there's a real psychic duress that comes with that. The thing that I'm seeing that is really heartening to me, this example that I'm giving you in Canada, where the students, the students themselves refused. They refused about not wearing the kofi. They released a statement. They showed up to the school the next day, all wearing kofis with people from the outside and sort of really made themselves be seen. And I think that has become more and more the case because we understand that the act of self-erasure no longer works. 
Because when people ask you to erase, they will keep asking and more and more will be taken from you. I was going to say, I do think we've turned a corner in a lot of ways. You know, I, I remember when, um, you know, books like From Time Immemorial, that terrible, in my view, uh, Joan Peters book was being praised by media outlets. Uh, now, today, I don't think that's the case. I don't think people would be praising that. And I think now you see a lot more voices in uh, even outlets like the New York Times. They allow Palestinian voices to write op-eds. Uh, we have Palestine Legal. We have lawyers within the Palestinian American community. And I don't think this whole, oh, the Palestinians don't exist, this whole uh, from time immemorial case is taken seriously anymore. I don't think the erasure is being accepted. Do you think we've turned a corner? I do think we're in a watershed moment. And I think it's because the the utter violence against Palestinians is you're unable to to not see that. And if you see that, if you are along the line of justifying why that needs to happen, I think people more and more are like, whoa, this is crossing a line. Now, one of the things I want us to think about critically, because again, this is my job, is we can both be very happy about the turning tide, the turning tide on the side of justice in in service of the liberation of an oppressed people, in this case, Palestinians. And also continue to be critical and put pressure on places like the New York Times. The fact that there needs to be an allowance for Palestinians is a problem structurally, right? And the fact that we have had Palestinians tell us this for 75 plus years, but now people are taking it more seriously, partially because I think more and more voices are included, including anti-Zionist Israelis saying this is we can't have this happen in our name. But there's something societally and culturally and largely off that goes back to your question about tasking Arabs and Palestinians with this is why was it so hard just from the get-go to listen to Palestinians about this? And that's something we have to take seriously. So in both ways, celebrate the uprising and celebrate the idea that folks really are starting to hone in on why it's important to stand in locked arms with Palestinian folks and to connect the dots between all of the sort of fights against oppression and also continue to be really critical about the ideological positions that have a still sort of question and be like, we need to qualify and quantify this. I just have one or two more questions if you have the time. Sure. So I wanted to get into this. If if, if you don't want to talk about it, I, I totally understand. But uh, you said earlier on in the conversation that you received threats, uh, you know, people talking about rape, death threats, et cetera. I know people also contacted your husband and were saying things like, uh, oh, why don't you keep your wife in line? You need to keep women in line like that. Uh, could you talk a little bit about just these really grotesque, uh, threats and emails that were given to you and your husband. Yes, of course. And, and I appreciate the sensitivity that you say, you know, if you don't want to talk about it, you shouldn't. And and I want to say that I, I went back and forth about going public about it because I understand that these sorts of threats are real to some people. And I'm, I'm aware of that. And I want to be sensitive to folks who might be uh, on the receiving end of sexual assault, for example. And, and, and at the same time, I think I've heard from so many people since this started 
where this has happened to them and they might not have had the, the support that I feel I, ha I have had or might not feel able to speak about things because they feel more precarious. And so that has caused me to make the decision to really speak out because this can't just be me. The influx with which this happened, the magnitude, the across the board, finding my personal email, my LinkedIn, my academia, I mean, across the board, my university email, on, on uh, social media, the ways in which this happened and the sort of logic in which the, the emails and the messages follow, it can't just be me. And that's why I really do want to speak about it. That's why I went public with just the, 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 the utter violence that's involved with that. And the violence also is because we know how racism and sexism works together. And all of these message messages had a similarity. They were both racist and sexist at the same time. You know, that that the messages to my partner, for example, and and you can beep this out if you want to, but I'm going to say it. One of them was very lewd and said, you know, why don't you sh shut your mouth's cocksucker, your, your wife's cocksucker, meaning my mouth. Right. I mean, the the level of like being able to feel like you can say this. And of course, for me with an analytic being like, these are the same folks who support invasion of our countries, meaning Arab countries, because Arab women or women are not treated correctly. These are the same people that are using the exact same logic to say that I should be controlled, right? And that some people might be like, well, that doesn't make sense, but it does because that's how patriarchy works. That's how sexism works. That's how racism works because it dehumanizes people, right? And it dehumanizes people from a superiority process. I was going to say, do you feel that part of the targeting of you by this organized smear campaign, you're not just an Arab, you're an Arab woman. And beyond that, you're also an assistant professor. Yes. So do you think that that plays into your being targeted? Because Absolutely. being an assistant professor, you don't necessarily have the same uh, privileges as, as certain other professors. So that plays into it. I think sexism plays into it. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think you're exactly right. I think the ways, and again, I don't think this is like a foolproof, you know, algorithm that stand with us, like inputs people's information and out pops it. But is there a, is there a sort of strategic calculation that happens? Of course it is, because any organization that's organized and wants to push their political position should have an organizing structure around this. So is it easy to go after an Arab woman, an Arab woman who's outspoken, who has gone on record about these things, they think it's easy to sort of make these connections. Um, I'm a junior uh, scholar, I'm a junior colleague. Of course, it, it it's an easy target. Does it always happen in the direction they want it to? No, we know a lot of cases where it just got thrown out as a blip on the screen, nothing happened, right? But I think it's also particular timing here that as things are also really working up, working themselves up in the context of the settler state of Israel, right? Where people are fighting against their own fascist government as the sort of tide changes in the context of the United States. We just saw the American Studies Association won a massive uh, law, uh, lawsuit, right? That was against them for 10 years. And, uh, and and they won, uh, meaning that they were protected in terms of their BDS position. 
all of these things came together to have a really strong movement of support in support of me. Both people who know my character and know how preposterous this claim is and know that it doesn't align with anything they know about me, but also the political moment we're in. That, I think, was something they might not have expected, right? But yes, at the heart of it, absolutely, all these things align where it's like, this is an easy target. And if it gets to the point where somebody is silenced, because I think sometimes people think about power being crude, and I don't think that that's always how it works. Sometimes it's also luck, right? And and if nothing else, if it didn't get to this point, Fox News hadn't picked it up, if all these sorts of support didn't come in, if nothing else, they bank on the fact that the people on the receiving end, in this case me, might feel silenced, intimidated, think twice about talking. That's really the issue here is how do you start to slowly create a uh, environment of fear, environment of intimidation? That's actually the last thing I wanted to touch upon. I've been disturbed when I've seen things like I, I mentioned the movie Farha and how people uh, would try to go after that movie saying, oh, this portrays uh, Israeli atrocities. It must be anti-Semitic. Uh, and I'm thinking to myself, you're telling Palestinians they have to erase their memory of the Nakba, you yeah. know, that this doesn't exist for them, apparently, because it hurts your feelings. To me, that's a form of bullying and intimidation when you're trying to erase people's, uh, you know, historical memory. I also think it was bullying and intimidation when uh, pro-Israel affinity groups, along with uh, Republican students, uh, helped to get Emily Wilder fired from the Associated Press. I mean, these bullying and intimidation tactics also have a real material effect on people's lives. Yes. Emily Wilder lost her job yeah. because of these intimidation tactics. So I think we have a climate of fear right now where yes. people feel if they speak out on these issues, they can lose everything. So what do you say to people that do feel silenced by the intimidation tactics or they're worried what can happen to my job, my livelihood? What do you say to those people? Right. I, I think my message would be sort of... Uh, two-pronged at least. One is that your fear is real. It's real because I think sometimes people are like, well, you're, you're over, you know, exaggerating. No, it's real. And I think this is for us too, like this throwing around this idea of cancel culture. I've never seen cancel culture to work except when you talk about, it's like the people who scream about cancel culture never get canceled, but end up canceling other people. Right? So, I was going to say, I always tell people that obsess over cancel culture. Yeah. I'm like, the original cancel culture was going after Palestinian activists. You know, I don't That's see right. you guys crying about that. That's exactly right. That's part of it. And also, because when we say cancel culture in an empty way, we're also not thinking about how power really works. Right. And what I mean by power here is hegemonic norms, normativity. Right. I've you know, the number of transphobes out there, if if all of them would get canceled, we wouldn't have that many transphobes out. So it doesn't even, it, like the coherence breaks down. The same thing with Palestine. So this is what I want to say is that the fear is real. And I think that is really important for us to contend with. The fear is real because of the real material impacts that you've seen. I have folks, for example, who write me from Germany who didn't even get academic jobs because they couldn't get there to get the academic jobs to then be smeared because they were smeared before they even got their academic jobs or people who are never hired or lose jobs because of their position on Palestine. So it's really important for us 
as a larger solidarity movement to not minimize people's concerns. Instead, what we should do is what I experienced in this, and that is the other, you know, the two prongs. The other prong of this that I would say is the part of it that feels like a different time is that there is a larger solidarity effort happening that is global. I have heard from people all around the world, even when, you know, it's an email or a text or reaching out to me or finding a way to sort of communicate that we stand behind you, that makes you feel like you're not alone in this. And that is what I would say is that these campaigns are meant to make us feel isolated. Part of the fear and the intimidation is that you are left wondering, am I going to be alone in this? How am I going to fare this? How am I going to afford to fight this? And we're in a different time now where there are organizations like Palestine Legal, in my case, the ADC, right, the American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee, and other folks who are willing to take these cases on because they're because they believe in those fights and because they recognize the discriminatory nature of these sorts of political campaigns against us. And so I think that help and support and solidarity is not very far. And part of the larger process is that is on us as a community and as a collective to make sure that people feel like they will be supported when they speak up. Because nothing is going to change this unless we continue to push this position. We continue to talk. And we continue to talk and not lose Palestine in the middle of this. Like, this is not about me, right? This is about a larger fight for the liberation of a people who have been oppressed for 75 years and counting. We can't lose sight of that. I just wanted to end on this note. There was a recent article in the GW Hatchet, your uh, university's uh, independent newspaper. Uh, the column was by Karina Berkeley. And it was entitled, GW Suppression of Palestinian Voices Violates Academic Freedom. And I think Karina puts it best. Instead of protecting free speech, GW has institutionally discriminated against Palestinians and supporters of Palestine on campus, punishing students, faculty, and staff perceived to be critical of Israel or supportive of Palestine. So this is an issue about settler colonialism. This is an issue about free speech. It's an issue about academic freedom. And I hope my listeners understand how much it matters. So with that being said, I want to thank you again for coming on the show, Dr. Shihai. And maybe you could let my listeners know how they could keep up with your case. And also, uh, any closing thoughts? Uh, are you hopeful for how this case will turn out? Thank you so much for having me. I'm always hopeful. I'm not a pessimist. I'm not a pessimist leftist at all. I think if nothing else, it shows us that we have a larger movement here and that we're here to support each other. And also that this is not a joke. It's not conceptual, right? And it allows us to rally behind these larger cases. Academic freedom is at stake here, right? And uh, Palestinian voices are at stake here. And and the larger issues that we're dealing with, whether it's racism or xenophobia or any one of the number of things that we're fighting in the United States is at, is at stake here. Um, I have hope in as much as I know what the truth is. There is no uncertain terms what the truth of this, of this case is. And I, if nothing else, that at some point, the entire truth will be out. 
And that is, that's my hope, regardless of what GW's position is. I, I know for a fact that they are in possession of the same truth that I have. And I just hope that they act in alignment with um, their ethical commitment to their faculty and their students to actually put that out. Yeah. And I just want to reiterate. So uh, you haven't been fired from GW. Uh, no. You know, the, the complaint we should note once again was not against you. This complaint no. was filed against GW and also... This is not a lawsuit that we're talking no, about. There, not. <laughs> there's portrayals of it as a lawsuit, but it's not a lawsuit. Correct. Absolutely. And just to the, the final note on that is that this has been adjudicated on the level of the university, both programmatically and on the dean's level, and I've been found without wrongdoing. So this third party investigator is concerning because its effect is very much chilling around academic freedom because it preempts the Department of Education. Well, thank you again, Dr. Laura Shihai for coming on Parallax Views. Thank you so much. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Laura Shihai. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with Parallax Views. The way out is not simply to say "Don't do it," just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing this like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.